Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I hope you are keeping warm because most of North America right now is in the grip of a really severe cold snap. I don't know how you're doing over on the West Coast, though. I'm constantly cold. It's a chilly, chilly 60 degrees over here. Yeah, uh, you're getting off pretty lucky. I'm pretty sure I'm seeing people from the South who have no idea how to deal with these temperatures are, are complaining about temperatures like that are like 10 and lower in Fahrenheit. That's incredibly rough and terrible, and that's why I don't live in the North anymore. I live in California. But the whole the whole continent practically just is in this really weird cold snap. Like it's actually not too bad in Toronto, but I'm seeing the one thing that's good about this cold snap is people are sharing pictures of their cats who are being very cuddly because they need to be warm. So there's all these cats <laughs> pictures of like cats cuddling up to their owners, cuddling up to each other, even though they usually fight, cuddling up on blankets. It's actually very cute, and the only good thing about this weather. Well. For all of you people who are trapped in the northern climes, I have something that will warm your bones. It is another console RPG quest. This week we're doing the PlayStation 3, Nadia. We are. This should be uh, an interesting go-over because, man, that, that, that console has some history. <laughs> Before we get to that, though, a little bit of housekeeping. Thank you for listening to Acts of the Blood God. If you enjoy the show, please go ahead and leave us a review it brightens our day and it helps the visibility of the show. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. And lately I've been streaming various games over on Twitch, twitch.tv slash TV. I've been streaming Final Fantasy VIII as part of our Pantheon of the Blood God game club, which is available to our $10 listeners you can go find that at patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. The official podcast will be kicking off at the beginning of March. And by the way, if you join our Patreon starting at $1, you can access our Discord with our amazing community who have been talking about Final Fantasy VIII and frankly, lots of other games. We even have a meme. It's about bagels for some reason. Shrug. <laughs> Shrug emoji. <laughs> and Nadia, we just wrapped up Television of the Blood God. We did. We finished up our Witcher watch, and we had a pretty good time with it. We have a lot of insight, and you can definitely be sure that we will be following the second season when it arrives, I think, this year sometime. Yeah, I've got a lot of ideas. I'm glad that I kind of have figured out how I want to approach Television of the Blood God. I feel like I learned a lot about how I want to structure those episodes and everything, and I thought the show got progressively better as we went along. Uh, I can't say the same for the actual Witcher show. It was kind of up and down, wasn't it, Nadia? It was certainly up and down. And I think the ending, well, we discussed it at great length on the podcast itself, but it tries to be the Battle at, of Helm's Deep. And only the Battle of Helm's Deep can be the Battle of Helm's Deep. So it came out not bad by any means, but looking a little rickety. You know what I mean? I do. But we're going to do a wrap up for our Witcher watch next week. And that will be accessible to our Patreon listeners. And then eventually we'll be on our free feed as well. So you can at least get a taste of what you've been missing. Okay, let's move on to the news. First item of business. This is a big one, Nadia. The next Final Fantasy XIV expansion has been revealed. It is called Endwalker. Yes, we are indeed going to the moon. And we're probably going to the center of the planet as well. 
the logo reveal is anything to go by. The expansion will wrap up the, I can't even pronounce this, light versus dark story arc. Heidelin and Zodiac, they're like kind of the light of light versus dark. Like Heidelin's the good goddess and Zodiac is the bad god. There's a whole thing behind it. And it's been going since the uh, A Realm Reborn started? Yes. Yeah, so we're talking about a 10-year storyline that's actually going to be wrapping up with Endwalker. Yoshi P was on stage and he explained how this will be it for the... Hydaelyn slash Zodiac arc. He did make it clear this is not the end of Final Fantasy XIV because, of course, it's not that the franchise prints money. He also uh, put down rumors that he is leaving Final Fantasy XIV. He insinuated that it's his life work and he's probably not leaving till he's dead. <laughs> hey, I mean, I'm really happy that he loves it. He seems to be extremely proud of his work and he should be from all, uh, just from the teaser that we got. We, it seems like it's going to be a pretty dark, heavy story. It's literally about the end of the world. And yes, we are going to the moon. And there's going to we are, there is already a lot of Final Fantasy IV connections here, which makes me very happy. For one thing, one of the new classes is the Sage, which uh, prompted a lot of cries of what is what is going on? Why is Alpha Note a Gundam now? And I showed you that clip of how <laughs> the Sages use these Gundam things to 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 shoot enemies and. I have to say, that's an interesting take on the sage. I never even imagined, like, you think a sage, you think, oh, robes, a crooked staff. No, this guy's just like, screw that, I'm a Gundam now. <laughs> yes, it's called a fin funnel, Nadia. And oh. it's been around since the original Gundam in one way or another. But I think its most popular iteration came in the form of the new Gundam, which appeared in Char's Counterattack. The fin funnel is just kind of embedded in Japanese popular culture, a lot like the X-Wing from Star Wars. People ah, just kind of recognize it right. to the point that Japanese military scientists, I think, have tried to actually make a funnel system. They're just like, <laughs> they think it's so cool. I, uh, okay, I'm not one for war weapons, but I kind of hope they would succeed at that someday. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns out to be absolutely terrible. And you're like, oh, I feel really bad for that, actually. This is extremely, extremely inconvenient and inefficient, but it looks cool. So that's what counts. How is the lunar whale a new mount? This is the funniest thing. Basically, the we only got a teaser for this particular uh, presentation. We will get more information at the fan fest in may which of course is going to be online and one of the one of the reveals they gave us as a hint was the lunar whale is going to be a mount an eight person mount the first eight person mount in the game as you can imagine so and not only is it the lunar freaking whale and you can like take your friends on a picnic that just kind of load everyone up and go for have a good time the music that plays when you're riding it is a remix of the lunar whale theme from final fantasy 4 and it's just incredible that's really cool it is really cool. Like you can you can see a trailer for the whale itself, but uh, I just love the fact that they are really they're referencing Final Fantasy IV with also new minions, which are little things that follow you around. I think there's Aridia. There's going to be an Edge, and I can't remember the third one who is going to be there. But yeah, there's also a um, suggestion that we will be meeting the naming ways on the moon. And I don't know if you're familiar with the naming ways in Final Fantasy IV, but there are those little rabbit things that change your name. And mm -hmm. they live on the moon, so I, I look forward to getting to meet those when the when the time comes. Even though it's ultimately it's going to be a very dark storyline about um, probably the world imploding on itself. Well, we're only a hundred dollars away from me being trapped in Catboy Hell, Nadia. We are, and I I would lay down money that by the time this episode goes up, we'll be even closer. 
<laughs> I hope so. But also, oh no, what have I done to myself? You, have, you probably never expected us to reach 5,000, let alone this quickly, did you, Kat? I did expect us to reach 5,000. I just wasn't sure how fast we would actually get there. Uh, but now that it's getting closer and closer, I'm just kind of like looking at it from the corner of my eye. For If we dip below 4,000, does that mean I can stop playing Final <laughs> Fantasy fourteen? Is that how it goes? Well, hopefully by that point, you'll like what you're playing and you'll stick around. I, I hope so, too. And I, I have a plan in my head, but I'm going to need everybody to help me figure out how to build a character and what server I need to be in and everything. That might be oh, when yeah. we start a, a proper guild. I know that there's been a lot of talk about that on the Discord. Yeah, you don't have guilds in Final Fantasy XIV. I think you have free companies. And yeah, hmm. there's been a lot of talk about setting up one of those. Uh, I'd really want us to have a house, but it's really hard to get a house in Final Fantasy XIV. The, the market's even stupider than it is in real life. Well, I mean, by the time I get to that point, maybe we'll have a big enough community that we'll actually be able to do it. I hope so. I, I would really love to have a Blood God uh, free company. Blood God, Blood God Manor. Manor of the Blood God. Yeah, there you go. Manor of the Blood God. It, it's actually, I have a lot of friends who spend a lot of time building their house and building furniture. I don't care. I'm not an interior decorator in the least. Wait a minute. This sounds like my, this sounds like precisely my stuff, my, my bullshit. Come on. I, I want to do oh, this. Oh, yeah. You said the magic words, building a house and designing furniture. Not only that, with 6.0 and that finally comes, we're going to have a, a basically a Stardew Valley sort of side game where you can maintain your own little plot of land and farm and stuff like that. Oh my god. So that's going to be insane. So what you're saying is that I'm basically never going to go on adventures. I'm just going to create my own little villa. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you know, who cares if the planet is imploding and Heidelin and Zodiac are fighting to the death? You have a house that you need to build. Okay, Nadia. While Square announced Final Fantasy XIV's expansion, CD Projekt Red continued its very bad year. It suffered a major cyber attack. The hackers got access to source code for Cyberpunk, Witcher 3, Gwent, and an unreleased version of Witcher 3. It sounds like the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 versions. The hackers also grabbed administrative information pertaining to accounting and legal issues. Uh, they also encrypted the servers, but CD Projekt was able to load up backup versions. So there was that. The hackers are threatening to release or sell info if CD Projekt doesn't come to an agreement. And last I checked, I think the first wave of leaks already hit. So uh, uh, it begins. It um, begins. CDPR said that they're not going to negotiate with terrorists, as it were. And so we're just going to get a lot of leaks uh, from various CD Projekt Red games, Nadia. We are. The hackers, first of all, the hackers said, you have been epically pwned. And I'm just like, what is this, 2002? Where am I? Come on. That, that's what you're going to say, huh? But there is also... I thought that was more like 2008. It, it was definitely a different time when I was younger and my bones didn't hurt so much. <laughs> <laughs> Bad, bad times for CD Projekt Red. It really is bad times for CD Projekt Red. And I, I I know Cyberpunk is not as good as it could have been. And I know that there's a lot of problems with its internal structure and crunch and all of that. But I don't think they deserve to have this done to them. This is a really, really... This sets a really... I can't even say it sets a bad precedent because we already had this happen with uh, Capcom which had a major, major cyber attack, and it's still suffering the consequences from that as people keep leaking stuff out onto the internet. 
at the time of this recording, yesterday I was on Good Vibes Gaming. Uh, that episode went up on YouTube today. We were talking about the the same cyber attack and the hack, and one of the one of the guests I can't remember. Sorry, one of the the people in charge of the podcast. I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it, but they were talking about how pathetic the security is for so many of these companies, and it's really time for them to change because they should have learned their lesson when Sony had that major breach and whenever it was. Heads up, Nadia. Pokemon is celebrating its 25th anniversary Woo. at the end of the month. So, And we can expect some Pokemon news coming around at this time, including the much-hoped-for Diamond and Pearl remake, perhaps. We'll see. Yes. I am curious to see what this news will be. I... I don't know, Diamond and Pearl remake, that's fine. I kind of want something else to go with it. I don't know what it will be, though. I would like a Diamond and Pearl, or something that's set in the Sinnoh region, but it's not a remake. It's more of a sequel. That'd be cool. I could deal with that. Um, I think that would make people angry, though. They're really looking forward to this remake. (laughs) As long as it's in the Sinnoh region, I think people would be into it. Yeah. You know what? I didn't give the Sinnoh region a good, like, the the playthrough it deserved when when, uh, Diamond and Pearl first came out. It just didn't grab me at first. So uh, I am curious to see how this goes. In the meantime, some reviews and previews have started to come out, Nadia. A big one is Persona 5 Strikers. It's currently enjoying a very solid 85 on Metacritic, Nadia, with many reviewers lauding it as kind of a half-sequel. Uh, the reason it's a half-sequel is because it is a Musou game, <laughs> yet another one. <laughs> you know, I gotta hand it to Koi Tecmo. They're actually really nailing these Musou games lately. Even though it's a Musou game is still a Musou game, you either love it or you hate it, or you just kind of deal with it the way I do. But they did really well with Age of Calamity, and I think, obviously, as we see from the reviews, Strikers is another win for them. And to be honest, this is a good way for developers to give us more of the content that we like from these franchises without... Uh, committing to a full game i guess i don't want to say like full game because that's of course these musical games are still full games but you know what i mean usually uh, something like persona 5 or breath of the wild are enormous undertakings that take years and years so this is kind of a nice stopgap in the meantime and you also got a code nadia i did i haven't fired it up just yet i'm i loaded it but i was well we'll get into this but i've been trying to play final fantasy 8 and struggling a bit Hmm. Yes, I guess we will get into that in just a second, won't we? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, Game Informer said, Catching up with various members of the Phantom Thieves was the element I was most excited for in Persona 5 Strikers, and it delivers for the most part. I loved learning what they've been up to since the first game, and watching them grow even more than through this adventure. However, I was disappointed to have limited social simulation opportunities. The social link mechanics are nowhere to be found in Strikers, Instead, you have a bond system that lets you upgrade your party. You can talk to the characters around the city and invite a companion you're choosing to do certain activities during the story. The conversations are typically inconsequential and underwhelming. And that's, like, honestly one of the best parts of Persona, so it's too bad that they didn't quite get that part right. That is a little too bad, but to be honest, I mean, I liked Persona 5's story and characters a lot, but when everything wrapped up, I can't say I felt like the really... this burning need to see what they were up to now it does not like anything really ended on a massive cliffhanger what i am looking forward to is just beating the hell out of enemies like to the accompaniment of the persona 5 soundtrack because what better combination is there i want to do that as well but i haven't finished persona 5 so i'm a little nervous about 
actual spoilers. And so I'm kind of hesitant to actually pick this up. Yeah, I don't blame you because even just the little bit that I did play, it looks like it takes place almost directly after the game. So you might run into a few story spoilers. Well, Nadia has a code. And so I'm sure she may be doing a little bit of a review. Yes. A little bit later, maybe in a week or two. In addition, Bravely Default 2 previews are live as well. Friend of the show, Alex Donaldson, says he still loves the battle system, especially the stacking commands, but he's really out on the graphics. And they are indeed an acquired taste, Nadia. They've always been an acquired taste, but especially now more than ever, because I think the HD style really <laughs> brings everything to the fore. I understand where he's coming from. I, I was never a humongous fan of the style, but I can tolerate it for sure. And the thing that makes up for it is bravely default. Whenever you whenever you go into a town, there's always just the most gorgeous background. So those kind of make up for it. And of course, by all reports, the soundtrack is amazing, and that's extremely important in a bravely default game. It's been drawing comparisons to Octopath Traveler. Of course, it seems like whenever somebody's going to talk about a JRPG looking good, Octopath Traveler is go to these days. Yeah, although I do have a couple of friends who said they find it extremely lifeless and don't like how it looks, and I don't agree, but that's an interesting take. Are you talking about me? Are, are you, like, throwing shade at me or something? No, I can't remember your opinion on Octopath, but I, I actually do have a friend who, who who you don't know who thinks it it's a soulless-looking game. I think the actual overworld and the towns look really cool. I find the battle system a little static. Uh, I can't remember if you like Bravely Default's battle system because they're very similar. I just think from the battle graphics standpoint, oh, I see. The, the, the actual gameplay is fine. Okay, I understand what you mean. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I can understand that complaint. Uh, I liked the way it looked just because it really gives me that Final Fantasy VI vibe. But yeah, I understand. Well, Bravely Default 2 will be out on February 26th and Persona 5 Strikers will be out on February 23rd. Okay, Nadia, let's talk quickly about what we've been playing. We've both been playing Final Fantasy VIII for the Pantheon of the Blood God. And Nadia, <laughs> there's a lot of jokes about how I'm basically just dragging you along. <laughs> Somebody posted uh, the Conan meme of me being like vibing along, being like, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. And you just kind of going, uh, as Bart. I I'm trying. I really, really tried, Kat. I don't think I can do it anymore. And... Here's the thing of, about my playthrough. Of course, I'll get more into it with our actual Pantheon, but I like it more than I used to. I appreciate the draw system. I think it's a cool idea. Uh, I think junctioning is cool if a little stupidly overcomplicated, and there's still parts of it I don't get whatsoever, even after seeing the tutorial. I, I think I can see the potential for absolutely destroying this game with the draw system. The fact that you can infinitely draw from monsters is just... That's weird. That is that is so weird to me. What is to stop you from sitting there and farming forever and ever and ever? And it's 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 just that. Well, there's a limit of one hundred. Oh, well, okay, well, we're good. But, <laughs> 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 but just the mindset that goes into battling in Final Fantasy VIII. Something about my brain seriously hates it because I'm just like, should I draw? Should I fight? Should I cast magic back at this enemy? It, is there's just so many variables to, to contend with. And even though I know it's not a, an extremely difficult game, I just don't like having that, that tangled up thought process in my head as I'm trying to enjoy an RPG. Even though I appreciate the components that went into making it, something about it feels really, really half-baked. How far are you? Um, when I first played Final Fantasy VIII, I got quite far before I gave up. And now I'm just... I haven't gotten far past Waltz for the Moon because I just, 
here's the here's the thing. Like, I don't I really, really, really don't like Squall at all. And hmm. he shows moments where I'm like, oh, I like him. I like this dude. Like, I actually do like the cinema where he's dancing with three. Uh, What's her name? Renoa. Renoa is it Riona? I can't remember how to pronounce it. Renoa. Renoa. I like that sequence because he looks, he almost looks like he's going to have fun and smile and realize, okay, I'm a bit of a dope. But then directly after that scene, uh, Quistus admits to Squall, I've been fired. Um, they say I'm not a good instructor. They say I, I'm just not suited for this job. What do you think? And she's trying to get something out of Squall and she's just like, whatever. And how unlikable can you possibly be when this, this teacher who's pouring her heart out to you and it's obviously extremely insecure and you can't even I'm not asking you to care that much I'm just asking you to not be like whatever it's not my problem uh fuck you weather boy I think that's what I put in the notes it's almost as if uh Squall is a moody teenage boy not oh come on I was a moody ass teenager we were all moody ass teenagers but I, I at, le- at the very least if someone's were you a moody teenage boy that's news to me Nadia <laughs> I was still a moody ass teenager and I well I grew up uh-huh. I grew up around moody ass teenage boys because I had brothers but t- even my younger brother who was a massive asshole no offense to you Justin I love you but he would not act like that to a, a, a woman a friend pouring her heart out after getting fired from a job in the most like cruel way possible that really attacks your psyche and she's asking Squall do you think that they're right and he's just like oh well, i don't care whatever go away not even if he had said like no i don't think you're you're right for the job i i would have been a lot better with that frankly i think that's his worst moment honestly his least likable moment uh, i think he's maybe more relatable he, he's almost kind of offering meta commentary on the story like later on and it feels like he's genre savvy and kind of aware of various jrpg tropes and so is actively pushing back on them uh in his mind especially like when he gets nominated as a leader and it's like well what are you talking about (laughs) why am i the leader now what's going on and it's not like there aren't elements of this game i like i of course i love laguna i've gone on about that i think he's a great character so good he's a great character i i I want to play a game with him that's all i mean i want to play a game with him too I don't know, Nadia. I've been absolutely adoring my time with Final Fantasy VIII. The game is so freaking beautiful. Um, it has this painterly quality that I really appreciate. It's so vibrant compared to a lot of later Final Fantasy games. It has this kind of European look to it, but like futuristic European yeah. that I really enjoy. And the thing that jumps out at me about Final Fantasy VIII is, on the one hand, you can really detect how Square just desperately wishes this game could be Uncharted. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> it has so many set pieces. Um, I don't even think you're to this point yet, but the entire sequence with Timber feels more like something out of a third-person action-adventure game than something out of an RPG, for example. But it just keeps moving at this really nice clip, but at the same time, it always feels like there's a lot to do. And it cuts you loose relatively early and lets you just kind of mess around, play around with the battle system, play around with the card games and everything. And I I find the world relatively compelling. I I like the international politics Mm -hmm. and um, how, you know, it feels like Final Fantasy in the sense that they've replaced the evil empire with, I don't know, the equivalent of the United States or something like that. <laughs> um, President Delling, instead of Emperor Gestalt, you have President Delling. Yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah. I do like Triple Triad, even though I keep getting my ass kicked. I played a hell of a lot of Triple Triad in Final Fantasy XIV. 
and I was lost. I'm I'm like up and down on the actual character designs. I especially hate Zell. He's so 90s. My God. <laughs> Zell is so massively not the one. Th- actually, you know what? I think Zell is what I like the most at this point because yes, he is so typical '90s character. But the thing I love about him is twice he tries to shake hands with Squall, and you see him rub his hand in his pants before he offers it. I think that was a great little touch. Actually, I I'm glad you brought that up, Nadia, because there are a lot of little great little animation flourishes. Like yes, I definitely. love how they the entire party will walk into a room. And everybody immediately all goes and kind of does their thing, right? Like Zell will yes. flop down on the couch or he'll be pacing back and forth like a maniac. And then Selfie would be over by the window and Squall will be kind of standing moodily off to the side. Like, that's really good. Yeah, I think that Square Enix, uh, they started to really perfect environments by Final Fantasy VII. And they they build upon it in Final Fantasy VIII in addition to building upon it in Final Fantasy VIII, that was also their chance to really get character models right because Final Fantasy VII's character models were by far its weakest point. They didn't have the the, the memory to make anyone anything other than a bunch of boxes, but they I think they made up for that with eight. I think being able to put it on times three speed um, or be able to turn off uh, random encounters also really helps its replayability because anytime it gets annoying or slow or whatever, especially when I'm using my GS, I can just hit super speed. <laughs> and yeah, actually, I've yeah. been following, I've been fighting a lot of bo- bosses, uh, battles on super speed just to kind of get through them really fast because I find actually the most appeal for me is tinkering around with the actual characters or like doing the story. You must love the whole junction thing and how you can just build everyone from scratch completely. Like not even mm. you don't you have enemies sorry, you have characters who can't even use item like the most basic RPG command ever. <laughs> it's so weird, right? It's they're, so strange. They're trying to rethink the RPG in every way possible. And the thing that's interesting to me about Final Fantasy VIII is this is the first one that really feels definitively set in a, something approaching the real world as opposed to this mm. steampunk kind of fantasy world. So it gives yeah. it a different vibe compared to previous games. It definitely does. I still appreciate very much what Square was going for. I really appreciate the fact that they had this gritty sort of punky uh, RPG on their hands that was a massive success. And for eight, they said, hey, we're turning that all on its head. They did something completely different. And that, take, that takes a lot of courage. So I'm going to keep playing and see where I end up. Who knows? I I might like it the more I play it. Nadia, just do me a favor. At least get through disc one, because I think disc one ends on a really strong note. Okay, I can do that. Disc two's beginning isn't so great. Like, I've been trying to get through. I'm, I'm, ready, I'm waiting for it to set me loose again, because I really do not like the desert prison at all. I think that's an, a terrible freaking sequence, nor, nor am I a big fan of the missile base. But once it cuts you loose again after that, I think it gets quite good. So that's a weak section. But I think something to keep in mind is that you can turn yourself invincible, if I'm not mistaken, if things just get hmm. too boring. That is true. Anyway, so we have our Pantheon of the Blood God episode for Final Fantasy VIII going live at the beginning of March. I believe it's the first Tuesday. We're going to have special guest Alex Donaldson from RPG site slash VG247, who is one of the biggest Final Fantasy experts I know here as our special guest. So it's going to be really fun. And it will be available to our patrons at the $10 level. Okay, couple final housekeeping notes before we head on to the PS3 console RPG quest. Nadia, 
you did like Ease 9 and you wrote a review of it for IGN. I did. You can find that review on IGN, and I also did a video accompaniment. You can look that up on YouTube, I suppose. I don't know where IGN keeps the reviews. <laughs> uh, presumably <laughs> on, their, on their YouTube channel. One would assume. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm just talking like someone who's been reviewing games since 2004, and it's just... God, I remember writing my first review for GamePro. It was some crappy Naruto, Naruto game, and I was so serious, and I had this notebook, and I was taking everything down. Now I'm like, uh, I think I wrote a review for I think I wrote a review for Ease. Go, go, look, Google it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have maybe a fuller review of it maybe next week or so. Uh, for because we're gonna have Kim Wallace on from Game Informer. Oh, cool. Yeah. Actually, uh, did she like the game? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I guess you can talk about it. We'll find out. <laughs> No, I did. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, very, very similar to Ease Eight, but not really in a terrible way. Of course, Ease Eight was a great game to begin with. So, yeah, if you're a fan, by all means, it's uh, even if you're curious, it's a good place to jump in. There are some story callbacks to previous Ease games, but that always happens, and you, you, there's not really enough to get lost. I will say there was one joke that made me like laugh out loud, where I got the game's legendary sword, and. Adol can kind of respond to the to the forging of his sword, and one of the choices was, "I'm going to lose this, aren't I?" Because he always loses his legendary sword when he starts a new game. Well, I also reviewed an RPG, Nadia. I've been talking on and off about it over the past month. Uh, my review is over at Rock Paper Shotgun. I reviewed Amori, which uh, mm. came out on December 25th, uh, 2020, but has been largely overlooked in part because it's a PC exclusive at this time and also partly because it had a bit of a weird uh release date so that meant that a lot of the media just wasn't going to notice it but i encourage listeners to access the blood god to check it out because it's kind of like earthbound and undertale but they really really execute on the concept very very well it has this wonderful kind of hand-drawn look on it it's actually based on a manga and it on the one hand, it can have some serious whiplash between kind of funny, kind of goofy, uh, very light, and extremely freaking dark. And it does a wonderful job of exploring memories, exploring grief, exploring uh, depression. I, I kind of likened it to Earthbound meets uh, <laughs> I Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> so make of that now what that you is will. A dark combination. <laughs> Has a very good battle system that is based on emotions with emotions being kind of a rock, paper, scissors situation where I think uh, sadness beats happiness, happiness beats anger and anger beats sadness. And you have to use that in various clever ways. It's coming out on console at an undisclosed date. And I really hope people take notice of this one because it's kind of a gem and it's worth checking out multiple endings, including some that you might not expect, Nadia. I've heard nothing but good but the good things about this game, and I'm really getting to the point where I might check it out on PC instead of waiting for the console release. You're not going to keep playing Tales of Vesperia? I want to get back to that, too, because I actually enjoy it very much. I don't know if you've seen the clips I've put up on. Uh, I have, actually. <laughs> they're pretty funny. So there's a really fun cast, and I, I, I've been enjoying my time with Vesperia. But you know how it is where you have 10 million RPGs, and you kind of got to play them all. All right, Nadia, that is all of our news and what we've been playing. It's time for the main segment, the PCS3 Console RPG Quest. Don't go away.
Okay, Natty, it's time for the console RPG quest, the ongoing series where we explore every single console to date and explore its RPG legacy. This week we are doing the PlayStation 3, which is now 15 years old as of the recording of this podcast. Originally released November 11th, 2006, right on top of the Nintendo Wii, a year after the Xbox 360. It was Sony's first foray into the generation of HD-enabled consoles. Nadia, what is your first memory of the PlayStation 3? I did not have a PlayStation 3 until quite recently when my brother gave me his and a shitload of hockey games I'll never play. <laughs> oh, that's that's very Canadian of him. <laughs> it's extremely Canadian. I have like, I'm looking behind me now. I got like NHL going, spanning back to the beginning of time. Like just so many NHL games. And I think... It was a good generation for NHL, I just have to say. NHL, uh, I think NHL 09 was an especially good one because I think that was when they introduced the updated control scheme. And there was a period from like NHL 09 to about NHL 14 where it was consistently uh, regarded as one of the best sports games around. Now it's kind of regarded as being kind of shit. But at the time, (laughs) it was amazing. He also, this is an interesting story for you. He also gave me a Madden game. Um, Let me look at which one it is. It's... uh... Uh, Madden 2005 and here's the thing nobody I'm not gonna say nobody in Canada plays Madden games but it's not nearly as possible as popular as it is in the states as you can imagine and the only reason my brother started playing Madden is because he had an American boss who wanted someone to play with so my brother's like okay and he, he took up Madden so that's why he has he gave me a bunch of Madden games too how random <laughs> It's like extremely random, but I thought that was kind of a cool story. Uh, one thing that always amused me about going to the States around Otakon, which was in the you know, kind of August uh, time span, is I'd always see stores like really hyping up the launch for, for whatever Madden game was coming out at the time. And it was, always seemed to be a really big deal. And you didn't see that here. What you would see is like, oh, my God, here comes NHL. So <laughs> that was a nice change of scenery. Well, my first memory of the PlayStation 3, I would, as with the Xbox 360 and the Nintendo Wii, I was living in Japan at the time. And so the PlayStation 3 was seen as kind of this big, unwieldy, massive thing. It was a giant brick <laughs> of a console that you could barely fit in your apartment. I, I joke, but only a little bit. And most, and as we discussed with the Xbox 360, maybe most Japanese gamers had not updated to HD TVs. I would say that HD television adoption rates were much slower over in Japan. Plus, Japanese developers were really struggling with the PlayStation 3, not the least because of the cell processor, which we'll get to in a bit. Hence, a lot of Japanese developers stuck with the PlayStation 2 and the Nintendo Wii to a lesser extent and the PSP and the DS. And I was among them. I stuck with all of those things until about 2009 when I moved back to the United States and discovered, whoa, everybody's playing HD consoles. What's going Mm -hmm. on? This is so weird. It was like culture shock, Nadia. It was like whiplash. Yeah, I think I remember asking you that because I was very curious how whether or not like HD was adapted quickly in Japanese households. And the answer was absolutely not. Whereas here, I think for maybe the first year of... Uh, the Xbox 360's life, no one is really talking about HD so much, but it seems like when the console picked up speed, so did HD televisions, and I don't know if the two are related, it's probably just uh, a really uh, good coincidence, 
But yes, there did seem to come a point where everybody was getting HD TVs, and I, it really did make a huge, huge difference for that particular generation of consoles. I remember the first time I played uh, Bioshock on my brother's HD TV, and I was just blown away by how different it was. Yeah. So a couple of my friends over in Japan did actually buy a PS3. I don't remember if they imported it or if they just bought it over at like Akihabara or something like that. But they had a PS3 because it was region free. So that was fine. Yeah, that um, was good. I think I think it was region. Yes, it was region free. But the backward compatibility was not region free. That right, was the problem. Yeah. So it was region free. And they got an H, a little HD TV with it. And I, if I recall correctly, they were playing Fallout 3 on it. So mm. that was my first like real glimpse of the PS3 and everything. And I just remember thinking of how pretentious it was because it had the tuning up orchestra when you turned it on. Oh, so pretentious. Such the most pretentious console by far. I mean, Nintendo was extremely overconfident with the Wii U but did not have even a fraction of pretension. And, of course, the PS3 had that whole buildup to its launch that did not help its image because, well, you know as well as anyone how uh, we were supposed to, quote-unquote, get a job, so a second job so we can afford this mm-hmm. stupid thing. And I remember that, so in 2009, I moved back to the States and I started working in the games industry and I was like, with I got my first like paycheck, basically, from freelancing. And I was like, now, as a reward, I'm going to buy a PlayStation 3. And I found an incredible like package for really cheap on eBay that had all of these PS3 games and all of these PS2 games as well. Like mm-hmm. I think it was like 30 games. I'm not joking. Wow. Nice. And I bought it and kind of kept my fingers crossed that it was real. And sure enough, PS3 showed up. It was totally real. It was a launch version. And I still have that launched PS3 to this day, Nadia. It still works just fine. I played Valkyrie Profile on it last year. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I have my PS3, but I don't use it. I mean, <laughs> there, when I want to play a classic uh, P- a PlayStation game, which you can do on the PS3, I just go for my PS Vita. I really wish that uh, the PlayStation 4 had some backwards compatibility going on. I mean, I would totally play Valkyrie Profile on my PS Vita or whatever, but Valkyrie Profile's not on PSN. I had to play it with an actual PlayStation disc. God, yeah. It's like, okay, we all complain about Nintendo, and they deserve every bit of complaint that they get about how they don't use virtual console to their advantage, but Sony's not much better. Okay, so that was one nice thing about the PlayStation 3 was that it was super backward compatible. Yes. It had a hardware-backward compatibility, not software, hardware with PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2. So you could play your entire library and it had like smoothing features and everything as well. So it was kind of the best way to play classic PS1 and PS2 games. Yeah, it it was very handy for that particular uh that particular feature, but it wasn't really enough to entice me to buy one. Mm-mm. And later on, you could actually start you could buy various PS1 classics as well. It had not an amazing library of PS1 classics and PS2 classics on PSN, but at a fair number. I had games like, for quite a while, it was one of the only ways, for example, to get Persona 3 Fez easily, for example. Yeah, I still feel like Sony, like Nintendo, have not used their backwards library to their, their greatest, their greatest uh, intent. Yes, there are definitely some good uh, PlayStation 1 RPGs that you can still get on PS Online. And you should. That's how I played Chrono Cross again. That's how 
God, I probably played Final Fantasy VII again. I always buy it and play it, so <laughs> I must have done that too. I got Suikoden 2 because it came out on PSN, and that's how I finally was able to play it because it was yes. so rare for so long. That was a big deal when it finally came to PSN. Like People were like trumpeting over, holy crap, we don't have to pay $300 for this game anymore. Let's play it. Hey, it's a great game. It's, it's nice Turns when that out works that out. It's still amazing. It's in our top 25 RPGs of all time. It's nice when that happens. Usually when you get this hyped up game and it's finally here, oh, it's okay, I guess. But no, Suikoden 2 is still pretty fantastic. Okay, Nadia, let's talk about the origins of the PlayStation 3. As we know, based on our console RPG quest with the PlayStation 2, PlayStation 2, very, very successful. One of the best-selling consoles of all time. I believe the best one of all time still. It is certainly up there, yeah. Yeah, and Sony, like, was able to just keep milking that thing for years and years and years. It was incredible. And that's when we got our first glimpse of arrogant Sony. <laughs> arrogant Sony had arrived. <laughs> they were going to turn the PS3 into this mega powerhouse thing. They were going to destroy all the competition. They brushed aside Nintendo. They brushed aside Microsoft. They own the market. And so here comes the PlayStation 3. At their E3 2006 press conference, still generates memes to this day. 599 US dollars. <laughs> Giant enemy crab. Ridge racer. Boomerang controller. Uh, I think maybe it wasn't at this particular co conference, but there was Ken Kutaragi saying that PS3 is for consumers who think to themselves, "I will work for more. I will work more hours to buy one." It uh, <laughs> it really set the stage, Nadia, didn't it? It did. And it's hilarious to look back on because uh, if you look back at you as gamer, I did write uh, an article about how YTMND, You're the Man Now Dog, which was a social media platform before we really had social media, it kind of ripped into the PlayStation 3 and just made uh, 10 million memes out of that really terrible press conference. And here's the thing about the PlayStation 3. They didn't just have one bad press conference. It just seemed to keep having more and more bad press conferences. Like, I think the Boomerang controller came out before, like, the news about the Boomerang controller came out before that actual uh, 2006 conference. So it was already on a bad foot, and it just kept on falling over. I remember seeing the PlayStation 3 at Tokyo Game Show 2006. That was my first time ever playing with it. And oh. I was playing like Heavenly Sword. I tried out Warhawk. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, this doesn't look so good. Or this doesn't look amazing. I, I guess Killzone looks okay. That's one thing I find about the new generation of hardware. It does take a while for developers to really make games that look impressive. Uh, I do remember seeing the Xbox 360 for the first time at a game store, and we were laughing because one of the characters' hair was still clipping against, like, through her shoulder, and we're just like, yeah, so uh, great HD graphics. But eh, things do get better, but you're right, the PlayStation 3 was already a hard sell, and it wasn't didn't really give us anything that blew us away at launch. Oh, I was thinking of Resistance Fall of Man, not Killzone. <laughs> Resistance Fall of Man was the, the big showpiece and that game was a mid-2000s-ass game. <laughs> <laughs> was that the one with the... No, that wouldn't be the one with the giant enemy That was crowd, the Alien game. I think yes. it was from Insomniac. Right. Okay, I remember now. Yeah. yeah that was, as you said, a, a very mid-2000s-ass game. So the PlayStation 3's debut, not so great. It had kind of a weak launch lineup. 
did not debut especially well in japan the playstation 2 was still very hot very successful Mm. in fact god of war 2 came out in 2007 just for reference and that game did extremely well because that's what people were still playing developer a lot of developers had no motivation to make the jump hd game development was new difficult expensive hd tvs were very slow to take hold in japanese households as we've already discussed and then there was that cell processor that i already mentioned which mark cerny admitted was kind of a problem it was just a complete bear to program for had trouble doing even the simplest of tasks And in general, it meant that even though the PlayStation 3 had really good hardware, like it was doing cool things like folding at home, you know, where Mm -hmm. it was basically you put a whole bunch of them together. You get a supercomputer. It still most of its games seemed inferior to the Xbox 360. Yeah, as we'll get into very quick, very soon, there were nightmare stories about porting from the 360, which was by all accounts a very easy console to program for because you're basically working with a PC. Bringing that over to the much more complicated PlayStation 3 caused some really screwed up glitches. Uh, Kaz Harai said something to the effect of how it was purposely difficult to develop for so you could (laughs) bring out the best in developers. I don't know exactly what he was saying. It wasn't exactly a clear quote. But Gabe Newell said that the PlayStation 3 was, quote-unquote, a waste of time. Can you imagine hearing yeah. that? <laughs> and, I mean, the problem is he's not entirely wrong. He was savage, for sure. Oh, yeah. Of course he was. But I see what he was getting at when you have over here is a, a console that's HG and extremely easy to program for. Here's a console that's very hard to program for. Supposedly it'll elevate you to the next level and you'll go Super Saiyan or something, but... That's if you succeed at at harnessing what this council can do, which who has the time, who has the money, we're in the middle of a recession. Let's just put the game on the 360 and maybe port it over to the PlayStation 3 later when when we are ready to meet with God. Another problem that the PlayStation 3 had was just nobody liked that freaking six axis. It was, (laughs) it, it was their kind of weird answer to the Wii, I guess, where they had kind of motion controls and you could tilt the controller. But it felt so flimsy in comparison to the class, the good old DualShock, and having the lack of vibration really hurt. I think they were going through a patent issue at the time. That's why they didn't have vibration, maybe. And as a result, like I don't, I'm not going to say that the six-axis single-handedly tanked the PS3, but it didn't help the perception of it. It did not. And speculation, probably correct speculation, is that. Sony saw how much hype the Wii generated because that was actually the three, the uh, Wii press conference went on in 2006, same as Sony. And whereas Sony tanked, Nintendo just generated a whole bunch of hype. So I think maybe Sony looked over at that at those motion controls and said, say, look at what they're doing <laughs> and cobbled something together that was, as you say, kind of flimsy and definitely did not work nearly as accurate as the Wii, which is saying something because the Wii wasn't always accurate, God knows. And the problem is, as you said, number one, no rumble, and that was a real detriment. Number two, it it ruined at least one game because Layer, the game where you were supposed to fly on the backs of dragons and do cool things, Sony shoehorned in motion controls and nobody liked them. They didn't work properly. And this was an infamous game because when reviewers started complaining about the problems, uh, they released a how to review this game guide because... They weren't reviewing it properly, apparently. Typical Sony. Yeah, and I, I'm still mad about Lair because Lair was supposed to be a Dragonlance game. 
and they turned it into a, a more generic dragon game. That's fine. But it always looked kind of cool and fun. And the fact that you can't play it because it's such a bear to control is a real, it's a real disappointment. It's a real waste of a game. I'm just mad because it killed off Factor 5, one of my favorite yeah. developers. Rogue Leader was an incredible game. Well, there you go. And it was such a waste. Such a waste. And then finally, the biggie, 599 US dollars. <laughs> that was considered insane for the time. And it really was just kind of over the top given its performance issues, the fact that there weren't so many games for it. And oh, by the way, 2008 was when we hit a uh, the financial crisis. And so suddenly everybody was out of a job. So that wasn't as much of an issue in 2007, but I don't think times were especially good at that time. <laughs> we were kind of like yeah, what, wait, moving along. People were just more enticed by the Nintendo Wii, which was from Nintendo and also had that novelty attached to it. It was a fad. People were really into that. So otherwise, so like Sony was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. So a lot of the old loyalists who might have originally picked up a PS2 were kind of moving toward the Nintendo Wii. And then a lot of the Western gamers were embracing the Xbox 360 because... Well, for a whole host of reasons, it had better online play. It ran games a lot better. It had a stronger library kind of at the outset. It had a lot of exclusives right Mm -hmm. out of the gate versus the PlayStation 3. And I just remember, Nadia, an EGM cover that said Battle Stations, and it showed the PS3 with a tomato being thrown at it. (laughs) And this was maybe like early 2007 or something, and it was just like, uh uh-oh, the PS3 really stumbling out of the gate here. Thinking back on it, I was writing a lot of kind of marketing stuff for video games back then because it was a new generation. The Wii was huge. All of these publications wanted whatever they could get about the Wii, and I was, of course, there to supply it because I'm a whore for money. And the thing I remember most about the image of the consoles at that particular point in time is that the Nintendo Wii was almost a substitution for a family vacation because it was a recession and people were losing their jobs left and right. And as a consequence, they were canceling their vacations. But what they would do to kind of, you know, as to make it up to their kids and the rest of their family is they'd buy the family a Wii. And the Wii really seemed like a family machine that everyone could get behind because not for the least reason was Wii Sports. Whereas PlayStation was that pretentious brick off to the side that just didn't generate nearly as much attention, didn't look nearly as friendly. And God knows its price tag, even with the drops that came, was still extremely high for, especially for a family out of a job. I think the other thing was that I mean, I was kind of firmly on PlayStation side because I was waiting for Japanese games, right? Of I was course, like, yes. I'm going to get the Jap- the Japanese games going to be on PlayStation. That's when I'm going to get it. And you, I felt like the experience of so- PlayStation 3 was just waiting for the, p- the Japanese games to show up, <laughs> waiting for the Japanese <laughs> games to show up, waiting for the Japanese games to show up. And then finally they showed up in like 2012. <laughs> it took, it did take a long time, but the PlayStation 3 did humble itself a bit and found its niche. I'm thankful for that because in some ways it's still a great little console, but man, did it teach Sony some hard lessons. Yeah, we all joked that, well, we all made fun of Kudaragi saying that they had a 10-year plan, and then it actually <laughs> lasted more than 10 years. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta hand it to them. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they certainly built that console to last, but it just, and it lasted, but it didn't have a good start, that's all. Well, I tend to think of the PlayStation 3 as having two distinct eras, Nadia. 
you could say that there's the Spider-Man font era, and then there's the Kevin <laughs> Butler era. <laughs> that's a good way to divide it, the Spider-Man font and Kevin Butler era. I tend yeah, to associate the, the Spider-Man font era as just like being a very bad time for PlayStation mm. 3 in general. Yeah, that was the, oh God, I don't want to have anything to do with this era. And Sony, you could see Sony just backing away from the problem, from those design decisions, like immediately, where they were like, uh, they started stripping out the backward compatibility relatively quickly with yes. de- various revisions. And then, so, and then eventually, and then they changed the, the Spider-Man font to basically the font that they're using still to this day, mm-hmm. which is you know, a very distinctive, cool font. It's not spider-man 3 font which i appreciate but uh yeah so it was a it was a little bit wrong-headed it was very of its era i think with the branding and then of course they introduced uh kevin butler who was a very very successful marketing campaign and i think changed the perception of sony from arrogant sony to kind of fun sony meme sony as i want to say buddy buddy sony yeah uh, Kevin, because Kevin Butler, and I'm not going to dwell on this too much because it was just marketing, but I mean, those commercials were really funny. They were. They they definitely, as you said, gave uh, or helped to spell that pretension that was hovering around Sony at the time. And I think that's part of what helped them ease the PlayStation 4 into a much more successful launch. And then they revised the console, like the, the console redesign, even though they basically got rid of backward compatibility, the later version of the PlayStation 3 with the matte finish rather than the shiny finish was a lot better, I think. <laughs> I think that's when Sony started to have some success with the three is they did the revisions, they dropped the price. There was, of course, controversy around losing the backwards compatibility, but the trade-off was the lower price and the slimmer design, so people went for that. Sony also did a lot of weird stuff with the the PlayStation 3 era. This is experimental Sony time. <laughs> so initially, when the PlayStation 3 came out, we were still in the physical media era, and Sony, and we had the Blu-ray versus the HD, uh, what was it, HD DVD era? Yeah, HD uh, DVD. Battle. Yes, that was something that lasted for two seconds. Yeah, well, I don't know, it lasted a couple years. I remember that, I, was it Transformers on HD DVD or something like that? There were like some, there were exclusives either way, but. Right, uh, oh God, this is giving me flashbacks, I feel so old. <laughs> So the Sony was trying to pull another PlayStation 2 by turning the PlayStation 3 into a Blu-ray player, which I believe further increased its cost. That's why it was so expensive out of the gate. But, I mean, it was kind of nice in that regard. But at the same time, like physical media, uh, I don't think anybody really realized that physical media was starting definitely on its decline by that time. I'm not sure if that's when Netflix started to take a hold or at least become something of note, but... It did by like 2009, 2010 was like when the streaming era of Netflix kind of kicked, started in earnest, I think. Because what really helped sell the PlayStation 2 was the DVD player. The DVD players were extremely expensive to get at that time, so the fact that it was packed in with a console was hugely compelling. Whereas PlayStation 3's Blu-ray DVD player, I feel like people didn't care nearly as much as they did about the DVD. So Netflix streaming started in 2007. There you go. So by that point, even though digital was certainly not the behemoth that it is today, it started to steal the thunder of physical media. So that influence was there, and I'm sure it ate away at the Blu-ray. 
In addition to the Blu-ray stuff, Sony got really fixated on 3D for a while. So there were 3D televisions with the 3D glasses because of Avatar. And so you would go to press conferences for a bit and everybody would have to put on the stupid 3D glasses (laughs) to be able to watch those uh, trailers. Press conferences at E3 just got so stupid and I'm going to be sad when they're gone because I don't think they're coming back. But you think about that and you think about the raincoats you had to wear at that Microsoft press conference and that time they shuffled you from from uh, room to room for The Last of Us 2 and it was like oh, yeah. boiling hot and the rooms didn't have any ventilation. It's like, let me see your stupid game. I almost it. fainted in that That's barn right. for Last of Us 2. We were just like, oh my God, poor cat, as we were trying to, to write about what you were seeing. And we, we felt really <laughs> badly for you, cat, but it was so stupid. Let me see your game so I can move on with my life. Uh, yeah, I, I did not love the 3D TV era, but Sony was just determined to own it. And they were coming up with all these crazy bundles for 3D television I think they had a 3D television bundle with the PlayStation 3 and maybe also the PlayStation Move, which was their other big thing because oh. uh, they saw their lunch being eaten by Nintendo with the motion control stuff. So jumped onto that train just as the motion control fad was starting to die. Yeah, that was the thing about Connect and Move. By the time they came out, we had fallen out of love with motion controls for quite a while Nintendo, even Nintendo's like Wii Motion Plus, which actually was one-to-one movement, we were just not that interested in. I think everyone was just fed up because they saw what was happening. All these motion controls were, sorry, motion controls were generating all these shovelware games that nobody wanted to play. It was a, it wasn't a great time. Nintendo or Sony's ice cream cone. Uh, yeah, that's, that's stupid. Uh, you know, props to Sony. At least they found a use for it with the VR, their headsets. That's That's pretty cool. If you want to see anything that sums up the PlayStation 3 era, I have a picture uh, from some E3 of, maybe it was 2010, of Kevin Butler pulling back what looks like a bow, but the arrow is a PlayStation yes. Move controller, and it's saying something like, the future is now. That's <laughs> that just that's, That crystallizes the moment for the PlayStation 3, I think. That crystallizes the moment for the PlayStation 3 and for motion controls in general. I think that was just... Mm-hmm. Uh, the future is gone, old man. We don't care anymore. <laughs> Thank you for making that reference, Nadia. <laughs> I well, I mean, the, unlike the Kinect, which basically deep six the Xbox One in many ways. You can yes. go back to our console RPG quest for the Xbox One. Uh, the PlayStation still uses the PlayStation Move because it's still kind of attached to the PSVR, which is still a thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was saying. It's not useless. People use the Move, but it did not. I don't think it did for the PS3 what Sony had hoped it would do for the PS3. Okay, Nadia, it's time to talk about the RPGs. And if you're going to talk about RPGs on the PlayStation 3, the first one you have to talk about is Final Fantasy 13. First announced at E3 2006, along with uh, Final Fantasy 13 Versus, or sorry, Final Fantasy Versus 13. And then they had the entire crazy... Uh, what was it, Fabula Nova Crystallis, uh, where they had a multitude of different Final Fantasy products coming in, like Sony or Square Enix was going big, was Final Fantasy, and then Final Fantasy 13 didn't materialize for four years. 
And it kind of summed up, I feel, I think we've talked about this before, it kind of summed up where the Japanese uh, games industry, where it felt like the Japanese games industry was at this time, where it was such a struggle to develop for HD consoles and games were getting delayed and it didn't feel like anything was coming out. And where Square used to pump out Final Fantasy games and I was like, where the hell is Final Fantasy Thirteen? <laughs> I remember people were making memes and jokes about how it's been two years. So how how long are we supposed to wait for this game? Uh, my sweet summer children, how long do we wait for Final Fantasy VII Remake? <laughs> and that was part one. Yeah, we were like really... That was when people really turned hard on Square, I feel, was between 2006 and 2010. They, they went from probably one of the most respected and or beloved game developers, like the super powerhouse behind playstation to something that was a little bit of a joke i think definitely they lost some of their prestige they lost a, a lot of their seriousness i feel like people just were dunking on them left and right and well, nomura was a meme himself you no, know nomura was still a meme Are you kidding me yeah <laughs> the thing i remember most about final fantasy 13 on the playstation is that the announcement came in about how it wouldn't be exclusive to the playstation 4 and people lost their minds. And for me, as someone who has been through Square Enix leaving Nintendo to go to Sony, I was just, oh, God, the nostalgia hits me right here. Because I, I did feel extremely nostalgic about the whole thing. The rage, the shaking of fists, the everything. And hell, they were still getting Final Fantasy thirteen on the PlayStation 3. We sure as hell didn't get Final Fantasy seven on the N64. And Square just made a, a, a total jump to totally sever themselves from Nintendo for years. I remember Shane Benhausen teasing the uh, exclusivity announcement on One Up Yours, maybe, and like what a huge deal that ended up being. Because I mean, it really did feel like the end of an era when all of a sudden Square, which had been strictly a Sony joint for so long, uh, was suddenly putting game- was suddenly a multi-platform developer was putting Final Fantasy Thirteen on the Xbox 360, and I think Final Fantasy Thirteen ultimately was still better. On the PS3, it was an early example, quote unquote, early example, like four years in of a PS3 mm-hmm. game, like actually like a game, an exclusive actually being better on the PS3. But uh, yeah, Final Fantasy 13, we put it at like number 11 on our great Final Fantasy ranking for a reason. It has a lot of issues. It does. Uh, you're right about on the PlayStation 3. I think it had high resolution, but um, either way, it was, uh, let's just say a controversial RPG. <laughs> to say the least. A, later, a little later on, Final Fantasy XIII 2 and also Lightning Returns would come out because Square was so desperate to use their technology that they had developed for the PlayStation <laughs> they 3. It. They may as well use it. Yeah, exactly. I remember uh, interviewing interviewing Katase for Final Fantasy XIII 2 and he was basically backpedaling on every single thing that the people had been complaining about with Final Fantasy Thirteen. Final Fantasy Thirteen Two was the game where Square Enix backpedaled furiously. Yeah, and uh, came out with a good game for it, at least, or so I hear. I haven't played it myself. So when I moved back to the U.S. in 2009, Nadia, I first moved to San Francisco in February of 2009, and I crashed with a friend and his girlfriend uh, while I was looking for an apartment. And my friend was in the games media, and he had a PlayStation 3 and an Xbox 360. And so this was my first opportunity to really mess around with all of the HD consoles. It was very exciting. I was like, oh, well, well look at all these games. This is incredible, right? <laughs> and 
The one that stood out to me the most had come out just the previous year. It was Valkyria Chronicles, Ah. which we've discussed on this podcast many times before. More of a tactics game, but definitely with deep RPG roots. Go listen to our Skies of Arcadia Pantheon of the Blood God episode where we talk a little bit about the serious connections between Skies of Arcadia and Valkyria Chronicles to the point where they're basically in the same universe, right? Like, they literally have two characters from Skies in Valkyria Chronicles. They do. They they are linked, of course. It's kind of a, a joke link that you get with these RPGs. But, uh, yeah, they are, cer- they are connected, which is actually pretty great. It was a big deal in 2008, Nadia, because it was one of a tiny handful of Japanese games to really take advantage of HD graphics at the time. It was gorgeous with that cell shading. Um, It still looks very good today. Not quite as good as it did then, but back in 2008, 2009, it looked glorious. It is one of those games where you look at it and it doesn't seem like it aged at all. I still really enjoy the aesthetic. I really ended up loving Valkyria Chronicles when I was originally covering it for one up sadly ended up selling pretty poorly which was kind of the thing for a lot of japanese games at the time japanese rpgs were just seen as kind of passe anything that was kind of anime was seen as deeply uncool and so it's kind of a hard sell to the general buying public that that is too bad that it did so bad even in japan i suppose just everyone in japan as we have talked about in the previous uh episodes at the time handhelds were much more popular like the ds was extremely hot mobile feature phones that sort of thing and yeah you did not really see a full-length full-blooded rpg on the playstation 3 at that time very often a little later that year a small game called demon souls was released and i mean we've talked about this before it was kind of a running joke it was like People kind of looked at it and were like, what is this dumb game from from software? The the studio behind Armored Core, whatever. People right. were writing it off. I went on a video with some former 1UP uh, show editors, and they were like going, what the heck is this game? And I was defending it along with Ray. And of course, we all know what happened. It ended up getting a remake on PS5. Yeah, if you're talking about important RPGs on the PlayStation 3, I'd argue that Demon Souls is the most important RPG on the PlayStation 3. I would say I think, Dark Souls is more important. It's more influential. Demon Souls is the starting point. That's what I mean, though. Like It was the one that kicked it all off. And I think one of the reasons it got such a boost eventually was because Penny Arcade went on about how great it is. They loved it. Mm. Yeah, and GameSpot gave it Game of the Year, I think. Oh, really? Okay, so that probably helped, too. So it was definitely a word-of-mouth game, and as you said, a bit of a surprise from from, from, from Software, which until that point was kind of a, a joke developer. Yeah, and try, like, for example, a couple years before that, Enchanted Arms had been released. That was a From Software game, and Enchanted Arms is not a good game, okay? No, exactly. It, it has its moments with its battle system, has kind of this cool tactical system that's going on, but the graphics weren't very good. It was kind of janky. Story was very bog standard, basic. And so everybody just kind of treated from software. I think people kind of put from software in like the same category as like Idea Factory in terms of prestige around that time. <laughs> it was not viewed very favorably. And to make it worse, to me, when I see a game called Demon Souls, I think, what kind of edgelord crap is that? What are you trying to sell me here? It just bounces right off my memory. But God knows anything with the word souls in it these days is certainly not going to bounce off your memory. <laughs> I remember reviewing Dark Souls in 2011 
and that was where it, it was it had embedded itself in the public consciousness at by mm-hmm. that time and th- still when it came out there was a lot of arguments back and forth between reviewers like there were the reviewers on the one side who were like i don't get this game mm-hmm. what's going on how can people love this game it's so janky and then there were the reviewers like me who were like this game is one of the best games i've ever played and it is going to be it's going to have a massive legacy and i was right so <laughs> uh yeah and now dark souls is saying that dark souls is great is a cliche at this point pretty much and i think about it now and i wonder if we're looking at almost an unspoken battle between story and systems people. Meanwhile, there was another game that was also kind of overlooked, and I believe it came out in 2010, thereabouts. It was just so hard for Japanese developers to get, uh, I want to say, traction, but there mm-hmm. were good games coming out, you know, especially once Japanese developers kind of got their feet under them. Uh, circa 2009, 2010, you yeah. started to see like a trickle of games. This one was Dragon's Dogma from Capcom. And I've said before that I remember being at a a game event and Dragon's Dogma, everybody was just extremely bored while they were trying to explain it to the press. And it was just (laughs) sitting there in the corner, completely ignored, completely unloved. And to be fair, it did not look good. It looked really janky. And I don't know, at this time, Japanese games just had a reputation for being way worse in terms of graphics than your typical Western RPG? Yeah, I think it didn't help that Japanese developers or some of them were trying to emulate that dark, gritty uh, atmosphere that a lot of Western developers were going for at the time. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, But Dragon's Dogma, I remember playing it for, I don't know, I think it was um, official Xbox magazine or something like that. And being really impressed by it because or it really took me off guard Nadia it turned out to be actually a extremely good action RPG and now people still love it now because of Dark Arisen it has a lot of good mods and everything and I mean there's a lot to dig into I feel like we've barely talked about it on here I feel like we need to do a Pantheon of the Blood God episode about this oh actually it came out in 2012 originally okay so it was kind of comparatively late in the PlayStation uh, 3's lifespan yeah I wonder if that didn't help it very much I remember mm. seeing this game at E3 2011 I think Capcom was really pushing it hard and I actually don't mind the idea of a Pantheon for Dragon's Dogma because I have the game on my Switch I just haven't played it yet well, it's beautiful. I mean, it's not beautiful, but it's cool. Like, you could climb on actual monsters to fight them. And I, I like the pawn system. And you could, sp- and it has a really good character creator. So, and mm-hmm. it's just a, a certain vibe to it that feels very distinctly Capcom. And God, they really need to make a sequel to this thing. I don't think you're alone in that assessment. Wasn't there a bad anime? Uh, no, it's on Netflix. It's really terrible. Katie and I were making fun of it episode by episode. It's just so generic and so awful it looks bad it sounds bad the story is terrible it's actually hilarious if you want to sit and watch it to make fun of it but otherwise i just don't recommend it in the least so i mean there was a reason that japanese games had a bad reputation around this time because games like i'm sorry to all the people who enjoy it last remnant was considered to be very janky Mm. uh when it came out on the xbox 360 originally there were games like the Idea Factory games, like Hyperdimension, Neptunia, Time and right. Eternity, Cross Edge. 
that were just getting savaged by reviewers because they were good because where the while the big uh traditional publishers like square enix were struggling in into the breach stepped these much smaller budget constrained developers they were kind of producing lowest common denominator rpgs that very much relied on sex appeal to sell they did not have anything particularly redeeming about them the only thing that stood out maybe the only reason that they got kind of a fandom was because japan it was a dry bad time for japanese rpgs at this particular time and so people were grabbing onto literally anything they could that's why people were so immediately grabbed on the nino kuni so hard because they were like it's a beautiful jrpg that's well produced on an hd console we love it we love nino kuni it's like well it has some flaws no it doesn't matter nino kuni is the best (laughs) (laughs) it's perfect i I remember bob got in a lot of uh trouble Mm. for saying he didn't like nino kuni very much at the same time, though, because games like Hyper Dimension Neptunia were considered to be so poor, it meant that games like Nier, which had actual, a lot of redeeming qualities, kind of got overlooked as a result, which was too bad. So, like, deserving games kind of got lumped in with kind of the flood of really bad games. Yeah, I'm glad to see some redemption happening for those games. We already talked about Dragon's Dogma, but Nier is also getting a remake. Yeah, or like Resonance of Fate. That was a really good one as well. It came out at the same time, the same freaking day as Final Fantasy Thirteen. So it was kind of screwed from the start. It's a great marketing decision, guys. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's so weird, right? It's like an anime. It's almost like episodic, but it has this distinct look to it that is very triace, and it has a really interesting battle system that is really hard to figure out and yet kind of compelling has it ever been re-released i don't think it has it's not it's on pc that's not bad just just something like that i would like to see get rescued the way that a lot of uh, wii u games have been rescued and and brought over to the wii i don't know if you really want to play it it's there on pc but i mean i think that it's kind of in some ways fallen off Oh, wait, there's a PS4 version that came out? I did not oh, know this thing. I stand corrected. Oh, okay. So, T-I-L. I had totally forgotten that a PlayStation 4 <laughs> version of Resonance Fate came out. Oh, it was oh, released in P- on PS4 and PC in 2018. Oh, we've been sleeping on it, I guess. There was a 4K remaster. Holy crap, they really went whole hog. <laughs> Sorry, guys. T-I-L. Sorry, Resonance of Fate fans. That's our, that's our bad. And meanwhile, there was Level 5, which was coming off... A really strong turn with Dragon Quest VIII in, what, 2004, I want to say? Yeah, around that And I remember maybe it was like TGS 2008, TGS 2009. It was like when Latent Mania was really taking off, among other things. And people Mm -hmm. were talking about level five as the next square. Like, I remember people saying this, like, square's on the way down, level five is on the way up. And White Knight Chronicles was heavily hyped around this time. Do you remember White Knight Chronicles at all? I do remember that you could, kind of like in Dark uh, Dark Cloud, you could build your own little town and share it via the PlayStation Network at the time. But I didn't play it, actually. It was this multiplayer action RPG that really spoke to how Japanese developers frequently had no idea what to do with online components right. in games. Because... I mean, they that was just a thing that they had kind of ignored on the PS2. It was not a thing. Uh, online play was not a thing in Japan, uh, w- with some exceptions like Fantasy Star Online and whatnot. It's still kind of the case today. 
honestly, where you see a lot of Japanese developed games just have terrible online infrastructure. And that was the case for Light Night Chronicles. And because they put so much effort into the multiplayer, the single player component really suffered. And it was a very thin and very basic storyline. Uh, the quests were basically of your go to the go to the bulletin board and get your quest and kill the thing <laughs> kind of and it's not held up graphically so everybody was excited for it in like 2007 or whatever but now eh. yeah I, I, when i looked at the game and i saw the story was so and so is joined by their childhood friend i'm like uh okay i'm good okay nadia and finally uh i would be remiss if i didn't do my super robot wars corner really quickly oh, i gotta have the super robot wars report everyone so I waited a long time for a Super Robot Wars game to come out on the PlayStation 3. It took a long time. I see where this is going. I don't think that a Super Robot Wars game came out on the PlayStation 3 until OG2 in maybe 2013, thereabouts. Ouch. That's a long wait. You bought a PlayStation 3 for this. No, I didn't buy a PlayStation 3 for Super Robot Wars. I bought a PlayStation 3 and the first thing I got on it was Burnout Paradise. But I wanted... A Super Robot Wars game on it. Of course. But Super Robot Wars games were only coming out on the Nintendo DS and the PlayStation Mm. Portable, which Mm. was the case for a lot of Japanese games. So I had to wait. And finally, OG2 came out, I think 2013, thereabouts. And it was gorgeous. Beautiful game. Original Generations game. Not licensed. Was not in English. But then Moon Dwellers came out. That was a sequel. And Moon Dwellers was in English very broken English. You can't really read it <laughs> at all. I want to see. Yeah. But, uh, and so that was, a lot of people were importing it because that one was in English, but it was like word salad. You could not understand anything about it. It was gobbledygook. So. <laughs> if Google Translate, and Google Translate at that time was terrible. Back when it was called Babelfish. And then a couple years later, or around that time, Super Robot Wars Z3 comes out on the PlayStation 3. It also came out on the PlayStation Vita. And the PlayStation Vita was pretty obviously the lead platform Mm -hmm. for Z3 to the point where, like, the map just had basic icons, like little head icons on the map because that was how the Vita version was. Uh. It was disappointing, to say the least. That does sound very disappointing. I'm sorry for that, Kat, especially since the Vita... Well, we all know what happened to the Vita. We do all know what happened to the Vita. On that note, it was kind of cool that the PlayStation 3 had a lot of compatibility with the uh, with the PSP and with the Vita. It was pretty easy to transfer back and forth with the different saves and everything, certainly compared to Nintendo consoles, where it was just a mess for a long time and in some ways still is a mess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They did make that quite easy, thankfully. Okay, so that is the Super Robot Wars corner. It was kind of a depressing time if you're a Super Robot Wars fan or a fan of a lot of games. But uh, Persona 5 actually made it onto the PS3, and it was pretty good, too. And it came out in 2017, so it did ultimately last more than 10 years. Yeah, it made it. It was originally supposed to be a PlayStation 3 exclusive, moved on to the PlayStation 4. I think Katie played the PlayStation 3 version. She said it was almost identical. And if you look at, meanwhile, if you look over on the Western side, Nadia, a lot of Western RPGs, just by dint of the fact that Bethesda and Bioware had those connections to the Xbox, were initially supporting the Xbox 360. So the original Mass Effect was an Xbox 360 exclusive, and so it was quite a while before we got Mass Effect on the PlayStation 3. That was Mass Effect 2, 
And when it, it came out on the PlayStation 3, and it looked very good, came out, mm-hmm. I think, about a year after Mass Effect 2 came out on the Xbox 360. But it had this cool Genesis comic, which allows oh, you to right. go through all of the different yeah. choices from the original Mass Effect and be able to create your characters. That was kind of neat. And then Mass Effect 3 came out on the PlayStation 3. So eventually it caught up. It just took a minute. Yeah, that's what happened, I think, was that in uh, in Western developers in particular started on the PlayStation 3, sorry, on the Xbox 360, and then took care of their ports on the PlayStation 3, sometimes years afterwards, sometimes with a lot of problems, as with Skyrim. Yeah, Skyrim was kind of an infamous case, wasn't it? I can't remember what, the, what, the, what was causing the problem. It was something to do it with the It had a memory safe- leak problem. <laughs> There's something about the save data just completely obliterating the game because it kept saving games and just <laughs> bogging things down. It was a bit of a programming nightmare, and it's a good example of how complicated was not better for the PlayStation 3. It was a total disaster, honestly. The PlayStation 3 version of Skyrim was just a freaking mess. And that is a that was a big hit for Sony, at least in the West, because, God, Skyrim was humongous at that point. If you bought... If you bought a PlayStation 3, like probably you didn't have enough money to own both consoles. So if you got a PlayStation 3 and you're like, well, it's okay. I'll play Skyrim on my PS3. You were in for a bad time. It kind of sucked. You were in for a very bad time. I think they eventually patched the worst of the problems, but it was definitely a game that ended up being kind of like uh, tied to the Xbox 360. When I think Xbox 360, I think Skyrim. When I think of PC, I think of Skyrim. Okay, well, I'm console trash, as we all know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of games were coming out, like Fallout 3. I think Fallout 3 came out day and date with the PS3. So did Skyrim. So did Fallout New Vegas. So it wasn't like the PS3 was getting completely screwed. But early on, the Xbox 360 definitely had the advantage, I think. It did, especially since those ports. I mean, Skyrim wasn't the only example, but there was a narrative for quite a while about how the ports on the PlayStation 3 were just not of high quality that did change, but it took some time. So the PlayStation 3 just kept marching on and marching on and marching on. I remember thinking in like 2011, thinking, okay, well, next-gen consoles, we're going to start hearing about those pretty soon. And we didn't get those until late 2013, thereabouts? That was, yeah, that was a long generation. I think the recession probably was one of the reasons why. The recession was one of the reasons, and it just took a while before developers really felt comfortable with technology. You could see games changing rapidly. I I would say, like, in 2012, we got The Last of Us, or it's like 2013, we got The Last of Us, which came out seven years after the release of the original PlayStation 3. Now, just for comparison's sake, the PlayStation 2 came out in 2001, no, 2000. Mm-hmm. And so that was so seven years would have been when God of War 2 came out and God of War 2 came out a year after the PlayStation 3 right. or the PlayStation 2. So that's how much longer the PlayStation 3 kind of lasted in general. And then a lot of games that were originally uh, just kind of on other consoles just eventually got uh, an HD remaster of sorts like Tales of Graces. Uh, I believe Tales of Vesperia eventually made it over to the PlayStation 3. Um, there, there have been, I think I've heard that there are so many ports of Vesperia that nobody knows for sure how many there are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Vesperia made it over to the PlayStation 3 in 2009. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of definitive editions, as it were. Yeah, you got a lot of uh, ports that were, uh, here's a little bit extra for you. Just a little bit extra. 
And so the PlayStation 3 just kept going and going and going. And so you would often have a PlayStation Vita game come out that would also be available on the PlayStation 3 and then a little bit later the PlayStation 4. It became, it took a while, but eventually those Japanese games did come. It was just that the PlayStation 3 was home to the kind of the low rent Japanese games, you know, circa 2015, 2016, thereabouts, where they were just still pumping them out because it finally had a little bit of an install base and they were just going to keep leaning on it. Yeah, I mean, heck, low development costs, uh, high fan base, good return on investment. A good example of that would be uh, Sora no Kiseki or Trails of Cold Steel, which came out in 2013 on the PlayStation 3 and would eventually be released on 2015 in North America on the PS3. And so that would have been two years after the PS4 came out. So that (laughs) just gives you an idea of where the PS3 was going. But maybe we'll talk a little bit more about Trails of Cold Steel when we talk about the PlayStation Vita. But I think the uh, I think it kind of exemplifies late period uh, PS3 in a lot of ways. It does. It definitely does. The the PlayStation 3 was it had a rough start, but it eventually kind of found its niche. Yeah, just by sheer, I want to say, stick to uh, persistence. Good for them. All right, Nadia, let's talk about the RPG legacy of the PlayStation 3. You have here, well, Sony sure learned some hard lessons. <laughs> That's true, didn't they? <laughs> That's me summing up things in a very well-duh manner. But Sony did apply those to the PlayStation 4, and uh, consequently the PlayStation 4 was just out of the gate, a much better console with a better lineup, and it was easier to program for, and it completely turned the tables on the Xbox 360. And that was because so arrogant Sony became humble Sony again. <laughs> humble Sony. With no more Spider-Man font Sony. But arguably, they're back to arrogant Sony with the PS5. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you talk about how big the PlayStation 3 was and how many complaints there were, I wonder how the people feel about the PS5. Things are landing a, uh, basically a carrier, an airplane carrier. It's a, a freaking base star from Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> it is. And we got our Xbox Series X. It's such a nice little thing that sits at the corner of your, of your entertainment center. When I think of the PS5, I think of the moment at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back where you'll have <laughs> maybe a Star Destroyer in space. But then a giant shadow is cast over it. And that's when the Superstar Destroyer shows up. That's the yep. PS5 and the PS3 in a nutshell. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect analogy. And I thought the PS3 was huge back in the day. It still is huge. But the PS5 is a friggin' moon base. It is. I don't know where I'm going to fit it. But that's for future consideration. <laughs> but the PS3 just, it was around long enough. that event, And it, got, it went through enough hardware revisions and Sony itself just kept evolving. I mean, I already mentioned, by eventually the exclusives started to come. The first-party studios started to come through. Japanese developers started to come through. The, the The library got big enough that the PlayStation 3 eventually kind of redeemed itself. And ultimately, the PlayStation 3 did not outsell the PlayStation 2, not by a long shot, or the PlayStation no. 4. But it did end up outselling the Xbox 360 by about $3 million because in the end, the even though the Xbox 360 got off to a roaring start in the United States and the UK, Sony was able to hold on to its traditional heartland mm-hmm. in Europe and to a lesser extent Japan and while still doing fine in the US and the UK. So it was definitely a down generation, 
But in the end, Sony was able to make the PlayStation 3 work by retooling on the fly. They did. And that is good. Although I still think that to Sony's detriment, people will always think of the PlayStation 3 as a failure for that bad start, even though it was anything but a failure in the end. It just, as you said, took time for developers to find their footing with HD development and the PlayStation 3 hardware in general. Uh, that was a that was definitely a, a generation of transition and where we started off really rough, but we ended up with some really fantastic stuff by the end that really did evolve the industry. I think the PS3's legacy is undermined a little bit by the fact that basically all of these games are available in one way or the PC and the PS4. True. So it feels like it has a less of a distinct identity. And as a result, when I think of the PS3, I just tend to think of the bad times rather than the good times. That's a big problem for it. I would say, though, despite that, I really want Tokyo Jungle as a port somewhere. Mm, yes, we didn't even talk about Tokyo Jungle. I looked it up. It's not really an RPG. It's more of a survival game, but I've always wanted to, to play it on a modern console. <laughs> you know, when I think of the PlayStation 3, I think of bad online play, bad mm. user interface, because that XMB was terrible. <laughs> so bad. It had terrible quality of life features. It didn't have trophies for quite a while. That's it didn't right. didn't have vibration for quite a while. It had no games for quite a while. And the thing didn't even really find its footing until 2010, 2011. It was just, I felt like it was a chore to play anything on the PlayStation 3 for a long time. And so I think that just colors my memories of it. And that, and that on top of that, I like Japanese games. I like JRPGs. And that was just a grim, grim, grim time if you're a Japanese, uh, a fan of Japanese gaming. I think as well that Microsoft was doing a lot of innovative things with games like achievements and great online play. And maybe Japan was a little bit arrogant about catching up there because they had their own plan for doing things. And screw however successful Microsoft is and how they are in America. This is what Japan wants. So this is what we're going with. And Eventually, they slowly relented and, as you said, put in trophies and, and all of that. So maybe they just kind of started to see the benefit of really observing your competition. It was kind of funny how I went from everybody was playing on the PlayStation 2 and then PlayStation 3, 360 comes out. Everybody switches to the 360. It felt like all of my friends were on 360. Oh, all and of then mine. The PS, yeah. And then all the PS, and then the PS4 comes out. And it flips again. All of my friends are on PS4. Nobody is on Xbox One. <laughs> People will go where there is the games. I mean, fanboys will be fanboys, but wherever it's always about the games. I mean, look at the Switch. Not exactly mm -hmm. the most powerful console in the world. Enormously successful. And I sincerely believe one of the reasons why is because it launched right out of the gate with Breath of the Wild. That was a must-have game that everyone just needed. If we've talked about the bad elements of the PS3, are there any like positive uh, parts of the PS3's uh, RPG legacy? Oh, th there's plenty. I would say Demon's Souls slash Dark Souls is extremely important. Same with Dragon's Dogma, even though it was overlooked. These are important games that, especially Demon's Souls, Dark Souls, that change the genre, that change the gaming landscape in some ways. Yes, it, if I were to say any particular, if there was any defining moment on the playstation 3 it was definitely the rise of from software from an utter joke of a studio mm -hmm. to one of the most popular and powerful studios in gaming which try telling some of that that in 2010 and just having them look over their glasses at you like what <laughs> <laughs> son are you on drugs and that was and that was after demon souls was popular it's like no from software it's good 
like from software is one of the most popular studios in the world like everybody will stop when the new from software game comes out i was like what are you talking about i think that's the legacy of the playstation 3 even though we have a firm policy of saying that dark souls is not an rpg around here (laughs) um it's it's loosely connected and I think From Software certainly draws heavily from the RPG tradition, so it's something that you have to really observe. As for the best RPG on the PlayStation 3, what would you say, Nadia? That's a tough one because, mm-hmm. again, I didn't really get into the PlayStation 3's software. I would say, if I had to choose one, though, I'd say um, Valkyria Chronicles. Valkyria Chronicles is a good choice. I don't know if it's held up extremely well, just because it gets a real to be a real bear to play um, over time. I am kind of inclined, and I don't really want to call out a Western RPG, because I feel like I associate Skyrim and Fallout New Vegas and Mass Effect with the Xbox 360 right. a lot more. Um, so I'm just going to say that, yeah, probably Valkyria Chronicles was one of the single strongest, but even that's a tactics game, you know? Exactly. Like, it's not like Legacy of the PlayStation 3's RPG library was bad. It was just, in the end, it turned out to be a very complicated kind of mess. It was like up and down, right? (laughs) It really was extremely up and down. And Valkyria Chronicles, uh, well, 4 is pretty good, so you should play it sometime. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is like... A lot of those games I was just talking about, they were all on the PS3, but I would say that they have a stronger legacy elsewhere. Exactly. And so that kind of waters down the PS3's uh, RPG legacy in a lot of ways. You're right. And yeah, I'll still go with Akira Chronicles for my choice, but I see where you're coming from. Screw it. Super Robot Wars OG 2. <laughs> best, best RPG on the PlayStation 3. Cat has spoken. And if you're into that kind of thing, Dark Souls. There you go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, that is our PlayStation 3 console RPG quest. Thank you for listening. I want to hear what your thoughts are. What are your memories of the PlayStation 3? Was there a part of the RPG legacy of the PlayStation 3 that we overlooked, which is probably the case? Send me an email, cat at bloodgodpod.com, or drop a line in our mailbag channel over on the Discord. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we pick a song from an RPG and explore it because music is so important for understanding the genre that we love. And this week, hey, we're in the middle of the Pantheon of the Blood God playthrough of Final Fantasy VIII, so let's pick a song from there. It's an all-time banger of a soundtrack, and this is probably the best song on it. See if you recognize this one. Yes, this week's track of the week is The Man with the Machine Gun, or better known as Laguna's Battle Theme. And Nadia, you wrote, one of my favorite things about this song is how it doesn't really suit Laguna when you first listen to it, 
The more you listen, the more you recognize the similarities. Man with machine gun is serious but earnest. It's focused, but has the scattered energy of a two-year-old after a sugar binge. It does, though. <laughs> and that describes Laguna, doesn't it? Yeah, he's earnest and extremely big-hearted, but he's also a bumbler and a screw-up. He takes being a leader very seriously, but then he leads his men off cliffs. Yeah, literally. He does. <laughs> he breaks every bone in his body. It's, it's adorable. That sounds so terrible. <laughs> Poor guy. But despite the disasters that follow Laguna, everything somehow turns out okay when he's around. To this day, I don't know how Laguna figured out sex in mid-squall. <laughs> but I do like how he's the polar opposite of his son. I mean, that's Laguna, I don't understand how he did it, but he did it. Maybe it was an accident, <laughs> but it happened. Well done, Laguna. Well done. Well done. Here's a gold star and a son who probably hates you. I really like Man with the Machine Gun because it's so energetic and it's like dance music. It is like it's uh, at the time, I think, like just that really heavy sort of energetic music was extremely popular in clubs. And it reminds me of that. And I think that it really is there to spell things out, because so when you're playing Final Fantasy VIII, the first time you see Laguna, you have no idea what's going on. You're just as confused as Squall is. You're, you've yeah. been playing around with Squall and then all of a sudden they all collapse. And here's this weird guy and everybody's going, what the heck, including Squall. You see Squall's thoughts in the background. And then you go into a fight and the battle music has completely changed from this very earnest kind of almost martial tone of Squall's battle theme to this dance music for Laguna, which is further enhancing your kind of disorientation. And so I think it's a really effective example of uh, storytelling as well in an RPG. Yeah, it's a, a good example of audio storytelling in an RPG. And I've seen people kind of say they associate this song with, oh no, my junctions are all screwed up now. <laughs> it kind of is, doesn't it? I mean, that's Final Fantasy VIII in a nutshell. If there's one thing I don't like about Final Fantasy VIII, it's, it's always having to switch my junctions back and forth. Yeah, exactly. But Laguna's earnestness kind of makes it all worth it. But whenever Laguna shows up, I'm happy because I love him so much. I love how in Dissidia, and I've talked about his like link in Dissidia before, just... Sorry, in Dissidia 0112, whatever the hell they call it, the second one. Duodecim. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's called. He's actually in that game, and he's uh, he's pretty great because he's such a happy guy, and it's even better when they have him working in conjunction with Squall, and they don't know who they are. They don't know how they're related, but uh, Laguna clearly thinks that Squall is just like such a, uh, a mopey-ass loser, and... Squall even says outright, this guy has serious problems and so he seems like something from a bad dream. I like, so one thing I want you to do, Nadia, is to play through disc one and to the beginning of disc two, because it has one of my favorite Laguna bits where he is living in basically the south of France or the French countryside, I want to say, in this cute little village. Yeah. And he's there with uh, baby Ellen and, uh, and Rain. And they're hanging out in this like bar kind of thing. And he's out patrol, and like the scenery is gorgeous. And Laguna is being a total goof, and Ellen is so adorable and small. And <laughs> I think it's Final Fantasy at its eight at its best because that's where it feels like so grounded, and yet it's also deeply silly because they're like monsters running around and everything. So, yeah, I think I did get that far when I did play the game originally, mm. and uh, it was so. I know the sequence you're talking about is extremely charming. It's funny because Laguna clearly loves children. And he, could you imagine Squall around kids? Like, just get the hell away from me, you you egg-sucking, bluesy little bastard. Like, he would not <laughs> tolerate kids. But Laguna is like a father to alone. And 
he's a kind of a, a desperate goof when it comes to a, a, you know trying to woo Rain. He's, he's not really very good at it. He, he succeeds eventually to his to his credit, though. I'm stupid. I didn't realize that Laguna was totally hitting on Renoa's mom. <laughs> I didn't realize that Julia was Renoa's mom. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually kind of an interesting connection that they have going on there, where Laguna and Renoa's mom, I think her name was Julia, were supposed to be together, maybe, but Destiny took a right turn at wherever, the way that it does with Laguna. And he, the kid that they had, uh, and the kid that uh, Julia had with General What's-His-Face, they, they kind of meet at the end, and it's kind of, I guess, romance destiny fulfilled or, or something like that. Well, Man with the Machine Gun was composed by Nomuo Uematsu because, of course, it was. And Final Fantasy VIII was where Uematsu really got a, a hang of the PlayStation sound chip. And, I think so, yeah. And I, I like the Final Fantasy VII soundtrack a lot, but I think Final Fantasy VIII is way better. Like, it's more ambitious. It's less simplistic. It just sounds fuller. Like there are so many like orchestral moments in it. It uses vocals really, really well, um, like throughout rather than just at the end. It is, I think, the best Final Fantasy soundtrack. That is a big, big, big mouthful to say, Kat. <laughs> okay, you... maybe Final Fantasy Six is still a little bit better, but eight is the second best. See, um, I do like eight soundtrack. It's not my favorite, but I understand what you mean about how Uematsu really started getting a hang for the hardware because when you listen to Final Fantasy VII soundtrack in comparison, it sounds much more MIDI-ish, whereas mm-hmm. eight sounds, it really does sound a lot more orchestral. You know, the funny thing is I like nine soundtrack, but it actually feels like a step back from Final Fantasy VIII soundtrack Oh, somehow. that's an interesting thing to say because I think I prefer nines a little bit more. I think that it's, you know, kind of cute and everything and but it's also oddly simplistic and it sounds like the the way that it uses a sound chip it's just not as full as and complex as the final fantasy 8 soundtrack i I don't know like it feels closer to final fantasy 7 than it does 8 maybe that's by design because 9 is such a callback to older rpgs and shipping days Okay, that's our track of the week. If you have a track of the week that you would like us to use, send me an email at cat at bloodgodpod.com or just DM me or something. I'm over on the Discord. You know how to reach me. It's letter time, Nadia. It's letter time. It's letter time. This one is from Supermoop. Dear speakers of the Blood God, loved the episode on 90s anime connections with RPGs. Just for a fun little hypothetical, is there any Western animated series you would like to see in RPG form? Western or JRPG, your preference. Personally, although this might count as a comic book RPG, I would kill to see a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle turn-based RPG with four party members in battle. Loving the podcast and congrats on the success of the Patreon. I don't know, Nadia. I think The Simpsons could be a really good turn-based RPG. <laughs> you were obviously thinking about that because that just, came, that just left right out of your mouth. Yeah. Or Futurama. Oh my god, Futurama could Futurama, be so good. Futurama, I think, would be a much more interesting JRPG just because of the settings they have going on. I would actually want to say Gravity Falls. Because I think Gravity Falls is one of the most brilliant cartoons in, that have been animated in a long time. And of course, given how supernatural it all is, it would, it would suit the RPG format really well. Oh, we didn't even mention South Park The Stick of Truth, which came out on the PlayStation 3 originally and almost killed Obsidian, actually. That's right. But I don't really, even though it's like generally considered one of the better RPGs, 
I mean, it's like several multi- several full-length episodes of South Park. Uh, also, I'm just not that big a fan of South Park. So even though it's very well made and very faithful to the source material, um, I would rather play a Futurama RPG than I would a South Park RPG. I probably, I don't know, because I actually did like the Fractured Butthole. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, even though sometimes, often, South Park humor misses when the when it's not political, which uh, the fractured butthole isn't really political. It's just the kids being kids, and that's when the show was at its best. I, I laughed my ass off so much at, at the at the fractured butthole, and I had to actually binge that game over a weekend so I could review it, and I still ended up enjoying it. I think Stick of Truth is the better game converse, compared to the fractured butthole just because Stick of Truth was made by an actual RPG developer. That's true, yeah, um, but... I didn't play the Stick of Truth. I played the. I only played the second one. That's kind of the one to play, actually. And you can pretty like most PS3 RPGs. You can that that one's pretty easy to get hold of. Oh, it's everywhere. You can like download it for zero dollars practically. It's on Switch. Yeah, exactly. And it it would probably be a good Switch RPG. Okay, Nadia, that's it for this week's episode. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review over on the podcaster of your choice, like Apple Podcasts. And also, if you enjoy the podcast, do us a favor, subscribe to us over on our Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Starting at the $5 level, you can get episodes a week early and ad-free, access to our Discord, and special episodes like Television of the Blood God, which is our deep dive Witcher watch, along with lots of exciting other content to come. And at the $10 level, we have our Pantheon of the Blood God, where we will go deep this month on Final Fantasy VIII. We'll be back next week, as always. But for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventuring.